listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only English language labor news and current affairs radio program. News for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Midlacero, and this is the Sunday, August 22nd, 2021 edition of Labor Express. On tonight's episode of Labor Express Radio, Chicago Public Schools and Amazon are our topics. Okay, okay, I know regular listeners are probably saying right now, again, but bear with me. I promise I'm going to mix it up in the next couple episodes and bring topics other than Amazon and the Chicago Teachers Union. But I think I have some really interesting stuff for you tonight. As the new school year is upon us, it's worth hearing about the Chicago Teachers Union, CTU, and CPS, the Chicago Public School System's negotiations over making sure the schools are safe in regards to COVID this year. In the first half of the program, we'll get a brief update from CTU on the status of those negotiations. Later in the program, and I really encourage our listeners to stick around for this, the bulk of the program will be an interview with Avery Barnard, a former Amazon employee who has launched his own podcast about his experience and about the Amazon phenomenon more broadly. You've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again. I believe Amazon is so critical to the future of work in the 21st century and to the survival of organized labor that devoting considerable time to the topic is certainly justified. Avery has a great deal of passion on this topic related to his experiences, and I think it will be enlightening for you all. But first, we need to take a moment to mark a very important and very sad turn of events regarding the labor movement this past month. The last episode of Labor Express Radio on August 8th aired days after the passing of AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka. Unfortunately, as the program had already been produced and submitted, I was unable to provide a proper notice of his passing. I really regret that. I plan to make up for that on our next episode in two weeks, which will devote entirely to examining Trumpka's contributions to the labor movement and the legacy of his leadership of the nation's largest labor federation. Tonight, in place of the time we usually devote to either Solidarity News from Radio Labor or Labor History in Two, I'm going to air a brief but insightful eulogy of sorts produced by our friends at Empathy Media Lab, a fellow member of the Labor Radio and Podcast Network. This short obituary actually places Trumpka in the context of the history of labor leadership in the U.S. since the 1950s. Trumpka, the son of a miner and a miner himself for a short time, rose to the leadership of the AFL-CIO through his leadership of the Mine Workers Union during one of its most militant and successful periods in the last 40 to 50 years. He came into the Federation's leadership as a reformer, though his success at actually reforming the AFL-CIO and the labor movement as a whole is questionable and something we'll discuss on next program. But until then, here's a brief overview from Empathy Media Lab. Well, let's take a look at Richard Trumpka. He came from a working class background. That's already for sure. He had been the head of the United Mine Workers Union. And that means the center of gravity was these coal fields in the Appalachians. And this, of course, was an industry that was sorely beset by changes in the world coal market, but also the lack of creative thinking on how coal could be used for other purposes, things like petrochemicals and so forth that would not pollute in the way that coal would. So we got to just take a look at the evolution of the AFL-CIO. Remember, American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations. The CIO was the radical part. They were the mass strikes of the 
30s, it was the United Auto Workers, the big industrial unions, whereas the uh, AFL were more traditionally craft unions and things like that. And they had come from a bad tradition, the Gumpers tradition, which was uh, be apolitical, don't get involved in politics. So the recent heads of this organization, we had a guy called Lane Kirkland. He was a reactionary. He was Cold War oriented. He was wrong on just about every issue. Less, less said about him, the better. Before Lane Kirkland, who did you have? You had George Meany, who was, if anything, worse than Lane Kirkland up and down the line. Well, that was that. Then in the mid-90s, we had what was at least the beginning of a turn, and that was John Sweeney, who came in and immediately presided over a strike against UPS. And this was the so-called Union Summer. So this was a moment of breaking the inertia of the old Lane Kirkland. When Sweeney left, he was succeeded by Trumpka. This was 2009. The big problem, of course, is that the percentage of American workers who enjoy the benefits of a union has gone down, down, down. And it has to do with the, the absolutely reactionary right to work features of the Taft-Hartley uh, slave labor law, because that's what it was, what it is. And it meant that the number of people who could get a union were reduced. The guy that Trumpka looked back to was John L. Lewis, who was a powerful, rambunctious union leader. He was also from the United Mine Workers. And by the mid-1950s, about one-third of the U.S. workforce were in a union. Now, if we had that today, we would be sitting pretty. And a couple of turning points along the way. You remember that Reagan broke the air traffic controllers strike in 1981 using scabs, and all kinds of things. So the idea was, starting with the failure of Carter, because Carter really had no use for unions, and you had to, but he didn't. He, he considered unions to be just another special interest, and they're not. They're something very special. They are an, an institution that helps to maintain the state. In Germany, they are so recognized. They're called Staatstragende Institutionen. They are institutions that help to shore up and bear the government and, and the national state. And we really ought to look at them there. So uh, Trumpka came in. He had to fight against the, this Taft-Hartley stuff and all the union busting and all the Republican ideology and so forth. And he succeeded to some degree. And unfortunately, he has now left us. I would say, based on this brief review, you can see that of the leaders of the AFL-CIO since the Second World War, Trumpka has been one of the very best. And that doesn't translate automatically into success, or organizing or even winning huge strikes, partly because the Carter spirit has been powerful in the Democratic Party and there's a lack of understanding why you need organized labor. Trumpka's idea had been to transcend narrow bread and butter union issues and connect to broader 
progressive movements, right? More organizing and uh, greater membership, but to do that with a broader social awareness. So we bid a fond farewell to, to Richard Trumpka. Thank you to producer Evan Papp and the Empathy Media Lab for making that tribute to Trumpka available to us. As I said at the top of the program, our next episode in two weeks will be devoted entirely to looking at the Trumpka legacy, so make sure to tune in for that. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for Working People by Working People. Well, the new school year is upon us. Summer is always so fleeting. Some staff were already back this past week. Teachers return tomorrow, Monday 23rd, and students are back in the classrooms just a week from now on the 30th. Despite that, the Chicago Teachers Union and CPS leadership are still in negotiations regarding the return and how to best make sure the schools are safe for both students and staff in the era of COVID. CTU has been vigilant since the return to classrooms last year and demanding that CPS follow the best and most comprehensive safety plans to avoid the potential spread of the virus in Chicago's school buildings. Last Thursday, CTU held a press conference on the status of the negotiations they've been having with CPS over the summer. Here is CTU President Jesse Sharkey, Taft High School teacher Eden McCausland, and school social worker Elisa Rodriguez explain to the press where things are at. I'm Jesse Sharkey. I'm the president of CTU, and um, we're going to uh, be giving you a bargaining update. We met with the board again today, and uh, we're joined by we were joined by CTU officers um, uh, Maria, who's our uh, um, who is our financial secretary and Chris Williams Hayes, our reporting secretary and PSRP for life. Uh, also, um, uh, several of our CT rank and filers um, uh, have um, Eve McCallson from Taft and Alyssa Rodriguez, um, who's a school social worker, um, are with us today and are going to be given an update. Uh, you know, I will say broadly speaking um, that uh, bargaining has been slow and frustrating lately. Uh, you know, I, I'd say, you know, we're not at a formal impasse. Um, but we're but we're um, we're not getting the kind of responses from the board we need, especially given the fact that today was the first day that our school clerks went back, and most of the rest of our um, members go back uh, in buildings next week for professional development. Um, board is continuing to try to um, water down a number of safety proposals um, uh, from last year, and um, uh, really we didn't get a lot of substantive bargaining. They they brought a doctor on today from the Chicago Department of Public Health to talk to us about why school is important uh, for students, which of course we know. Um, and she provided some justifications for, you know, why the board is trying to um, do what they're doing. Um, but, you know, again, um, didn't get written proposals on any of the key things where we think we need um, more safety areas. We did then um, uh, later in the session get into a discussion about social distancing. And, um, you know, the board has proposed to cut our social distancing from last year um, in half to three feet. Um, where possible. And that's really the, that where possible in particular uh, is a real problem. And to talk a little bit about that issue from the point of view of some of our rank and filers, I'd like to ask um, Eden to, to start us off. Eden? Hi, thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, so really this phrase of where possible is a huge sticking point for us. Um, we need to have some clear guidelines surrounding the social distancing, especially since we're going to be going in five days a week. Um, full, everybody being present in school. We know right now 
Um, Delta, the Delta variant is uh, rampant throughout the country. We know that our vaccination rates are not where they need to be in order, order for us to have a thing like herd immunity. Um, and majority of the people that are gonna be in our school buildings are gonna be unvaccinated. Our children under 12 are not gonna have any access to that until maybe the winter or early next year. And a, a lot of our high school, middle and high school students are just simply not vaccinated. So in order to protect our kids, we need to have these clear guidelines. And one of them being having social distancing and it being three feet, getting rid of that phrase of where possible. Um, if you've been paying attention to the news in the past couple of weeks, a lot of schools have started back. And we have seen in those schools, kids are falling ill. Now, a lot of those schools have little to no mitigation. So this is a real opportunity for Chicago Public Schools to pave the way um, and put together a comprehensive mitigation strategy to protect our kids and let us be the gold standard for the nation on how to open safely and protect our kids that are not gonna be able to get vaccinated. So we're really asking CPS to step up to the plate here and be a partner with us to protect our unvaccinated kids. Um, because that's, we just don't have a way to get them all vaccinated right now. So we're really calling upon them to push for three feet that we don't want the where possible. We want that phrase really, um, to, to go away. So we yeah. want to have clear guidelines around that. Yeah. Th th thank you. And, and there's a number of situations where actually six feet is, is, is more appropriate. Um, you know, and one of the big areas where we have concerns about that is in clinical settings. Um, and Alyssa is going to talk a little bit about, about the issue from the point of view of a clinician. Alyssa? Hi, yeah. So today we also brought up clinicians and the spaces that we have or the spaces that we don't have um, within the school setting and, you know, to allow our students to have quality services um, with confidentiality, with giving them the ability to work in small groups. Um, you know, we continue to have the conversation on whether or not it's really understood how the role looks, depending, depending on which um, clinician you are. And, you know, if you're potting or, you know, having to move kids from one group to the other, if you have kids from different grades that have to meet based on goals and minutes, um, and just continue to try to have that conversation of getting actual language centered around what um, services should look like and how they can look so that we know what we're walking into on the first day so that we're really being able to um, create schedules that are feasible and realistic um, to give our students the quality services that they need in order to access their um, curriculums inside their classrooms and outside of that classroom setting as well. Um, and it's an ever ongoing and evolving conversation. Um, we do know spacing is an issue. And so we know that that's also something that we really do have to consider talking about when we're hammering out social distancing guidelines um, and cohorting for different groups um, based on goals and minutes and structures. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, thank you for that update. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, it was a um, that's that's the new news in, in a nutshell from today. Um, uh, you know, like I said before, um, things have been slow at the table. Um, uh, the board is has not moved on a couple on, on several important things. They've been unwilling to, um, to to agree to metrics. They've been unwilling to agree to a vaccination program that we think is going to get us where we need to get. And we've been unwilling to sign off on on something that's not adequate. Um, so that means they're stuck. Not formal impasse. You know, we're still at the table. 
Um, but you know, it, we're, we're at a frustrating period right now. And um, really what our focus is on is trying to get our safety committee some basic tools they need in order to be able to um, help enforce some conditions that are gonna give us some layers of mitigation, keep us um, relatively safe in the buildings um, as our members start going back into the buildings. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. If you listen to the July 25th episode of our program, you've already been introduced in a fashion to our next guest. Avery Barnard is the producer of a podcast called simply The Amazon. Avery is a former Amazon employee and decided to produce a podcast about his experiences at Amazon, as well as an examination of Amazon's impact on our society. I aired an excerpt of one of his recent programs on our July 25th episode. I decided to reach out to Avery to find out more about his experience as an Amazon employee, his view of the nation's second largest employer, and why he decided to create a podcast around this topic. Avery currently lives in Virginia, and I interviewed him by phone last Thursday. I first asked him to tell me a bit about himself outside his life as an Amazon worker. Well, I, um, I've, <laughs> I've, I, I like to think I'm a writer. <laughs> I'm still getting there, though. Um, I've done, sheesh, I think maybe eight years of doing stand-up comedy pretty regularly now, and quite a few years of playing music, too. So a lot of being on stage and talking to people, and that's kind of been my whole adult life at the age of 26 here, is just finding jobs that suit me. And give me enough free time to kind of be a little more creative, hopefully. And uh, that's basically the simplest way to do it. I'm just some guy from Virginia that likes to get out and experience the arts when I can. Okay. Well, that definitely uh, explains a little bit about your talent that you have in the podcast, too. I've definitely been impressed with the podcast. I, I haven't been able to listen to all of the episodes, I must admit. I've, I've been able to listen to several of them, but I've been definitely very impressed with your work. Well, I appreciate that already. So <laughs> that's, that's uh, you know, it's, honestly, it's, uh, you know, it's a jab in the dark. I'm just <laughs> trying a thing I don't know how to do. And the fact that anybody listens at all has been, um, if, I mean, breathtaking, really. Like, it's, it's just, it's cool. It's cool that people care enough to listen at all. So I, I appreciate it. Well, let's talk a little bit, too, about your history with Amazon uh, before we get into the podcast. I, I know you worked for them for a while. I know you've not, you're no longer working for them. How long did you work there and in what capacity did you work there? Well, when I was, I want to say around 21, I started work at uh, Amazon Flex. Very new to our region. I just happened to look for jobs on Craigslist one day. Um, and I was fresh out of uh, the local community college. So um, with a liberal arts degree, which didn't help too much. But I that's how I started. And that was independent contracting and right around when I started to get to playing music and traveling. So it wasn't too bad for me when I was 21. Like Amazon flex can be a real hit or miss deal. It's a pain in the butt and it can be uh, complicated and problematic as all gig economy work can be. But for a 21 year old, can you explain a little bit what Amazon flex is too, for people that might not be familiar? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So Amazon Flex is an independent contractor gig work type deal. You look for work when it's available through their Amazon Flex app by more or less just tapping a refresh button over and over and over and over and over and over, over again, like all day. And occasionally these things, we call them blocks. I, I, think, I believe everybody has a different term for it. But little sections of work where you, if you're the first person to click on it and hit accept, you might get two hours of work here and there. And you show up to an Amazon warehouse at the appropriate time. They pull out a bunch of bags. At the time, we were doing mostly groceries. And they say, all right, take this out. You hit uh, somewhere between 5, 10, 15 stops. And you load them into your personal vehicle. You take care of your own gas, insurance, everything else. And you just get that stuff done. If you get it done before two hours is done, you still get paid for two hours. If you get it done four hours from now, you get it paid for the two hours. So <laughs> it can be a hit or miss. And it's, you know, gig work. I I, I did an episode about gig work. And um, it's usually, it usually bites you in the butt when you're not about, like with stuff you're not thinking about, you know, the wear and tear on your vehicle. And it's not a sustainable way to make a living. And Amazon really, really, really tries to make sure that it's not a sustainable way for you to live off of. They, um, they try and limit people uh, to a certain amount of hours. Like, I, and they keep hiring and hiring so many people that the hours just became less and less prevalent. I was lucky and got in in the first, like day one of the brand new program. It had been going on in Seattle and LA, and then Virginia was one of the newest programs. So I was doing about, I don't know, 30 hours a week when it first started up, and or maybe 20, honestly, and still living with my parents. So it worked for me. Um, it absolutely would not work as a career. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. Um, but you could earn tips if you were lucky. And there was a brief period where Amazon stole all of your tips. And, um, I believe the, they have a lawsuit where they just lost 60 some odd million dollars that they had to pay back to Amazon flex drivers. I forget the exact number, but it's gig work. You go to a station, you pick up a bunch of bags, you drop them off at a bunch of houses, you hope you get good tips. And what people really didn't realize was how much time they sent there, uh, spent there tapping on their phone just trying to get this work. It really did cut into a lot of hours. So there's people that, you know, tried to cheat and have uh, this. <laughs> we use this thing called FREP at my warehouse where it was just like a little program that would tap your phone for you. And it, the story of it all is extremely detailed and that's a long one that I wish I didn't always feel like rambling on about so much, but, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's gig work. It's ups and downs. And at the end of the day, you're probably going to be more down than up. You're listening to labor express radio news for working people by working people. In my interview with former Amazon employee, Avery Barnard, producer of the podcast called The Amazon. Avery mentioned Amazon stealing its drivers' tips. A little more detail on that point. In June, the Federal Trade Commission reached a $61.7 million settlement with Amazon for taking drivers' tips. 
When Amazon launched its Flex service in 2015, that's the uh, delivery driver system you heard Avery describe that he was uh, a part of, they promised their so-called delivery partners. Don't you just love how corporations always avoid the term workers? They are so afraid of the term workers. Instead, they use things like partners for subcontractor workers like the uh, uh, Flex service or associates for their direct employees like the warehouse employees. Uh, anyway, Amazon told its delivery partners that, quote, you will receive 100% of the tips you earn while delivering with Amazon Flex. Obviously, that was not what actually happened. Stealing workers' tips is a common form of wage theft in many service sector jobs. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, we'll hear more from Avery, including why he decided to produce a podcast about Amazon and how he sees Amazon affecting our society. So make sure not to turn that dial and to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. In the first half of the program, you heard me talking with Avery Barnard, former Amazon employee and producer of the podcast, The Amazon, about his experiences as a delivery driver for the company. Avery was also in close contact with many of the warehouse workers at Amazon's fulfillment centers and learned from them the experiences of other workers in the Amazon system. His podcast discusses not only his own experience, but the experience of other Amazon workers, and he has researched the effect Amazon is having on society as a whole, which is one of the major topics of his podcast. Here, Avery talks about those other workers who shared their experiences with him. Oh, yeah. As I, so as I got uh, older, I, I, I actually, the job I just left, which I'm pseudo still employed for by getting all my PTO paid out, is uh, I was doing the Excel delivery program, which is more or less the same thing as you see in those. Um, I, I know you said you're in Illinois, I believe. The, the program's here in Chicago, yeah. Okay, so yeah, you see, uh, do you ever, I'm sure you guys see those Mercedes vans with the Amazon logo on them. And um, I don't know if you guys do have an Excel program. It's more or less the same thing, but with bulky items like furniture and, you know, weights anything heavy on 16 to 24 foot box trucks. That's what I was doing for almost two years. So I did also get to meet a lot of uh, warehouse workers at the warehouse I'd go to. We weren't working for the same company. They worked for, some of them worked for Amazon and we were working for a, a delivery service provider who was contracted by Amazon. It's all, very well done legally to keep Amazon from paying so much in taxes or healthcare for workers and all this other kind of stuff. It really saves them on the bottom dollar. Um, that was, but yeah, I've talked to also, sheesh, I don't, I don't even know the number now of warehouse workers that have been uh, personal friends and people I've met online. I've talked to, um, I think two delivery service providers now and uh, yeah, most, most of the people I talk to are either delivery drivers or in the fulfillment centers, they call them the warehouses. So you've already kind of started to discuss um, your experience with the work and how you felt about it. You've mentioned the fact that, you know, it's gig work, which means that it's very, you know, 
undependable. I, I can understand that as somebody who did Uber and Lyft myself, right? So I know what you're talking about in that regard. And that it can be, you know, it's pretty much impossible to actually live on. Um, I, so you've talked about that. Can you talk a little bit more too about, uh, you know, what your work experience was like and also what you heard from the others, like the people in the warehouse and so on? Now, the warehouse work, I would go ahead and qualify as most dangerous, at least I, and that's a stab in the dark kind of, because it's kind of hard to pull up all the numbers from these delivery driver jobs. You can't, it's physically impossible to find out how many wrecks or deaths are happening on the delivery side, but the warehouse is rough and it's going to stay that way for, I don't, until maybe someone decides to unionize and the dominoes start to fall. Uh, every warehouse is, of course, different. Some people, you know, some people enjoy the job, and that's good for them. I really do like to hear that. But for the vast majority, it's an in-and-out kind of job. Maybe there you're there for six months in a hot warehouse doing prime week. And, and it's just dangerous. It, the, the, their injury rates are double that of the national average of warehouse workers, and it's underreported vastly. So... It's, it's, a, it's something that's so simply, when you look at it, just the numbers, wrong, inhumane. And it could very easily be fixed. It's just, it would require slowing down the process and making sure people are treated well, which would cost money, which is not something Amazon is willing to do. Do you know what it is that makes it so dangerous? Like, what are, what are the uh, things that tend to lead to injuries in the inside the facility? Well, if you're working, if you're working at a warehouse for over a year, I everyone I've talked to tells me about the sores and pains they have, and it repeat that repeated motion that they have with stowers, pickers, all these kinds of people. You're just for more or less repeating the same thing over and over and over again, you're working the same muscles, you're working the same areas of your body, you're picking things up all day. And it really just, there's no human being that's going to do that for a year and not start to get a little sore or, and that's the, <laughs> the least of the problems, like the pains that eventually lead up to major medical issues for people. Um, the real dangerous part of the job is the fact that with the heat and the long hours and the no breaks, uh, or well, not no breaks, I don't want to say that, but the very limited amount of breaks, it's exhaustion that starts to really lead to those deaths you read about. The people that fall down on the line, the people that are get heat stroke. I mean, there's a brief period of time where Amazon was hiring private ambulances to sit outside of their fulfillment centers to take people to the hospital faster for heat stroke and treat them possibly on the spot instead of just installing AC and lowering the rate, which would have completely eliminated the problem at the source. But instead of that, Amazon said, no, we're going to just hire ambulances to take people that are falling down on the line to the hospital, which is cruel <laughs> but in an extreme circumstance it's going to lead to you killing someone and that's exactly what has happened it's it would have it's what happened in richmond um i think in 2016 i do forget the date but 
it was funny. I was, I have a, a weird connection to the man that died in Richmond, which is, I was speaking with one of my bosses at the fulfillment center who, or uh, not fulfillment center at the delivery station who did work at that fulfillment center when that person died. And I just casually asked if this all came up from a casual question, just asking my managers if they've ever experienced anyone dying at one of their warehouses. And one of them very cheaply, uh, cheaply said, yeah, of course, <laughs> which was kind of a scary answer. And then I asked what happened, and she told me it was in Richmond, and this guy who had previous medical conditions just collapsed one day, and no one knew what happened. It was all a total accident from what she told me. And I was like, all right, well, I got to Google what happened. And first story that came up, like a New York Times article, is this guy that was, you know, built but fit happened to just collapse on the job, uh, you know? after I think he's working like a 12 hour shift and the details are very sketchy because Amazon doesn't allow anyone to call 911. If they see an emergency, you have to contact security or their in-home medical staff, which obviously delayed the response. Um, but what, what absolutely happened to that man was he was overworked and exhausted and collapsed and his heart gave out and he died. Um, but <laughs> hearing it from my manager, it was like this big accident. Oh, well, this thing never happens. And, you know, it's total freaking freaking nature accident. And turns out, <laughs> no, that's not at all what happened. This man was very clearly working in harsh conditions for a long time. And eventually it just got to him and it gets to, you know, a couple handfuls of people every year. You're listening to Labor Express Radio News for people by working people. And my interview with Avery Bernard, former Amazon delivery driver and producer of the podcast, The Amazon. You heard Avery discuss in the previous segment the dangerous conditions for workers in Amazon's fulfillment centers. Independent sources confirm what Avery is saying. In 2019, the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health included Amazon on its dirty dozen list, citing its high incidence of worker suicide attempts, overworked employees peeing in bottles to avoid punishment, and the poor treatment of contract and temporary workers, which Amazon relies on for most all of its operations. Reveal, an investigative journalism online publication, was able to attain internal company records that revealed, no pun intended, that in 2019, Amazon Fulfillment Centers recorded 14,000 serious injuries, much higher than the industry standard. You can find links to those sources on our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. One can only imagine how these conditions have likely worsened during the pandemic with increased demand and speedups. We've covered on this program in the past various workers' actions that have taken place over the past year to protest conditions at Amazon that increase the likelihood of the spread of COVID in the fulfillment centers. In this next segment, I asked Avery to discuss the dangers facing delivery drivers like himself. Avery pointed out that getting statistics on the number of deaths and injuries of drivers is even harder than it is for warehouse workers, but provided the evidence of his own experience as a guide. Yeah, exactly. Like how many, if you were to think about, I mean, we were only driving 16 and 24 foot box trucks that were uh, regulated by DOT. Not, you didn't have to have a CDL to drive them. But if you think about it, if you see these big trucks on the road, you really hope that driver 
is getting a good night's rest the night before, you really hope he's not working a 12-hour shift right now towards the end. Uh, but unfortunately, what is really going on in all of those Mercedes vans and all those box trucks is people are working 50, 60 hours a week who very often also have side, uh, side jobs with like DoorDash or Uber. So they're not working just 50, 60 hours a week. They're working sometimes 70, 80 plus hours a week. And then they wake up very early in the morning, get into a very large box truck and drive down city roads that are not big enough for them. And that causes a lot of problems. We've had at my facility, I don't know how many accidents exactly. I know of three big ones. Um, one was an accident down in the Outer Banks that very seriously injured a woman and totaled a truck. Um, I was, the other two, I was riding passenger for. So one was a very, you know, casual, just, I, I guess a car wreck isn't casual, but <laughs> driving uh, off the side of the road in the middle of like a uh, very rural place. So that one wasn't too bad. And then there was another incident where I ended up flipped over which was kind of um <laughs> but there's a lot of yeah there's a lot of near misses you encounter and it's kind of it's just scary to think about because we've for so long built up all these regulations for people that drive really big trucks or commercial vehicles because we have to. Those people need to be well-rested. Those people need to be treated right. Those people cannot be exhausted or sore all day, or you're causing a real risk to the society they're trying, or the city that they're trying to provide for. And Amazon does not at all allow room for that. Uh, as much as they try and say the delivery part of the like the, the delivery part of the job isn't on them. It absolutely is. Uh, they make the rules for the DSP owners. They say they're independent contractors, but they follow the law of Amazon, which is inherently going to make these people overworked as they do in the uh, fulfillment centers, as they are overworked anywhere else in Amazon. And it's just like you throw this already chaotic workplace that's contained to a warehouse and you throw it out in the public and you're gonna cause major issues like i mean no one's gonna be perfect i doubt you uh, ups has had zero accidents this year right but they significantly uh have less injuries and fatalities than Amazon. As hard as it is to track the damages on the delivery side, it's there's not a station out there where people have worked for a year and haven't seen something happen. You, I mean, usually, I'm sure there's exceptions to the rules everywhere, but if you stick around, if you stick uh, around long enough, you're gonna see something dangerous take place. I mean, it's just inevitable. And it's sad. 
You're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program. And an interview that I conducted last Thursday with Avery Bernard, who used to work for Amazon and is now the producer of a podcast called The Amazon. So we have heard a lot about Avery's work experience with Amazon and some of the investigative research he's done talking to other employees and looking for data online. I asked Avery why he decided to launch a podcast that covers his own experience, that of others that he's talked to, and that interrogates the Amazon phenomenon more broadly. Um, <laughs> as simple as it is, I really, one of my favorite novels of all time is The Jungle, which is very famous novel. I'm sure many people have read it through middle school um, about the Chicago meat packing facilities in the early 1900s and the immigrants that worked them. It told the tale of Jurgis. And, you know, I got, I got to thinking when I was reading that again as an adult, man, <laughs> these problems that they're describing sure do sound a lot like the same problems we're having at Amazon. And I've always, I've always really respected journalism and independent journalists. And I guess I just decided to take a stab at playing pretend at that and trying. And, um, you know, I'm just a dude. <laughs> I'm just a dude living in, the, in Virginia, going to landfills across the state now and who happened to work at Amazon for multiple years. And I don't know. I just, I know there's so much room for improvement over the entire United States for labor reform. Like it has to start happening. Things are, in my opinion, going in a bit of a downward spiral. People are starting to work more hours. They're starting to get paid less. And during this, like we've seen how very little these people who make the world turn matter. Uh, pretty depressing. And I knew, I knew one facet. I just knew Amazon. <laughs> During our conversation, I suggested to Avery that he shared my view that Amazon is the nation's second largest employer as a trend center for the economy was potentially shaping the future of work in the 21st century. I argued that the only way the conditions he describes at Amazon and for workers in our economy in general would improve is through organizing, a belief I knew Avery shared from listening to his podcast. Absolutely. Oh, that's why the, I mean, the, I mean, God bless the Teamsters, but that's the reason they just took this historic vote to start fighting Amazon. Amazon's starting to bite into their territory. They're starting to really gut places places like UPS and FedEx has changed drastically since Amazon has started doing this delivery service and it's changed for the worse for the workers, obviously, because they need to extract more money out of this business to keep up with Amazon. And Amazon's done this to everybody they've been in competition with. They have been held up by things like Amazon web services and other factors of their uh, company to go and explore into new territory like delivery. And they absolutely take the legs out of the competition because they just do it 
with <laughs> so cheaply and so mediocre or like so terribly, but they do it so fast and they just have a vast amount of people working for them. They could just throw people into this meat grinder until they start to take away value from other companies. And I mean, the Teamsters, I'm, I'm glad that they're stepping up to fight Amazon. Obviously they haven't made any kind of like public statement of what their idea is to fight them. So we'll see how that works out over the next couple of years. But it, it absolutely, Amazon is absolutely about crushing everything in their way. And if you read um, anything about Jeff Bezos, like the everything store is a real good book and I'm still churning through Amazon unbound. Uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's only like Jeff Bezos or Andy Jassy or David Clark doing this kind of thing who are real higher ups and Amazon, but they just have this one track mind of, Everything that's in our way has to absolutely be pummeled by any means necessary. And I mean, I guess that's the heart of capitalism a little bit, but at some point you start to not just hurt companies, you start to hurt and kill people. Real <laughs> living, breathing people are dying for this cause that they either don't know about or don't agree with. And they, I mean, I don't blame anyone for working at Amazon. We all would like to have food to eat tonight. And a lot of the, like a lot of the hardship when it comes to fighting Amazon is getting people who are afraid to lose their job, afraid to not be able to feed their kids, afraid to not have a home to take a risk of a strike or something of that nature. And people like that, I, I you, you can't blame anybody for feeling that way, but you'd really like to help them. And it takes a very unified effort. And Amazon is unified at the top to destroying everything around them. So you're listening to Labor Express Radio News for working people by working people. In that previous segment, you heard Avery mention the Teamsters' intentions of organizing Amazon workers and the existential threat Amazon with its virulently anti-union attitude and its influence on the economy is for organized labor and unions in general. In June, the Teamsters announced a coordinated national effort to organize Amazon, not facility by facility, as so far has been attempted and failed, but system-wide. It's a plan that many in the labor movement are hailing as an important step in the labor movement's attempt to take on the Amazon behemoth. It's a topic we will for sure be covering on this program. In the last segment of my interview with Avery, I mentioned a belief I knew from listening to his podcast that we share— the idea that Amazon is a system of distributing goods is not inherently evil and is certainly not going away. The both of us are Amazon customers ourselves and recognize the tremendous societal value that Amazon's distribution network provides. We're not Luddites, and though I admire those who try to avoid Amazon and shop locally, which has its own important value, the key to making the Amazon phenomenon beneficial to the working class globally is not to dismantle the system, but to organize it. 
to ensure maximum beneficial working conditions for Amazon employees through widespread unionization into democratic militant progressive unions. Much has been done with other essential industries like steel and auto or in the service sector like healthcare and teaching last century. Avery agreed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, (laughs) I don't like I try and whenever I'm talking to like friends or anything, I always tell people I don't want you to feel bad for ordering from Amazon. It's a necessity at some point, especially for these people during COVID who are at risk. Like they need somebody to bring stuff to them. And that's wholly understandable. It there's this service doesn't need to not exist. It needs to be humane and it needs to put the priorities of people ahead of the priorities of Amazon. If you want to have what I would consider a better society where people have a better way of living. And I think, I don't think there's ever going to be some magical decision from the top where everybody in charge of Amazon changes their mind and decides, you know, the profits really don't matter as much as making sure these people are safe who do this job. I, <laughs> I mean, they would, that would be awesome if they decided that, but don't hold your breath. I mean, it, it's, and even if they did decide that, there's going to be someone else that potentially could come in and sw- like just absolutely demolish them. Like if you're not firing on all cylinders constantly <laughs> in this world, you might end up losing. I mean, it's, there's this whole concept of the flywheel that a lot of big business guys talk about. Like Jeff Bezos has really subscribed to the idea where every single thing you do has to push that flywheel a little bit faster just a little bit faster. And that perpetual motion will keep the machine up. And when no one talks about when they're talking about this flywheel concept is the amount of people you really burn through to make that happen. Like you have to throw physical bodies at that kind of thing to make it work. And they don't all come back the same. Some of them don't come back at all. So I don't know how much more we can take as a good society before it just it just breaks uh, i mean amazon affects everybody even if you don't work there like you're saying with the whole tax breaks and stuff they get earlier and the whole like hq2 i'm paying for that second headquarters out of my pocket because it's in virginia Like, my money is going directly to Amazon. Personally, I would like to see that money invested into actual, the actual communities and things like public transit and better health care, because I think that would improve Virginia a lot more than HQ2. But it's just, it doesn't end. The, The more and more you dig into this, the more and more you find out about more and more people that Amazon hurts like (laughs) it just doesn't stop this flywheel concept burns through people to make that company run and if that's the ultimate goal of amazon to keep that thing churning then 
it's got to break by, <laughs> I don't know, nature or people or who knows what could happen, but it just can't keep going the way that it's going now. Thank you to Avery Bernard for taking out time from his busy schedule for that interview. You can find his podcast, The Amazon, just The Amazon, through a link on our Facebook page at laborexpress.org. It's available on all the major podcast sites, but it can be located directly through that link at laborexpress.org. So I suggest that's probably the easiest way to do it. A quick lighthearted note about uh, the conversation that I had with Avery before we started recording. Avery was talking about what he does as a job now, which I don't quite understand, but it involves going to landfills around the country. Um, And we joked about the fact that his job at landfills and being in landfills is better than working for Amazon. So that tells you something. I want to apologize to uh, to all the listeners too uh, tonight for my voice. I don't know what's going on. Uh, It sounds as if I'm going through second puberty or something. I've tried to uh, clear it up a little bit here, but uh, it just didn't seem to get any better. So I do apologize for the sound of my voice. Before we go, I was asked by the organization Radical Women to announce an upcoming Zoom event of theirs that sounds very interesting indeed. At a time in which reproductive rights are under attack in this country, Radical Women has organized an international panel on the fight for reproductive justice in Argentina, Ireland, and the USA. The panel will discuss how mass movements to defend reproductive rights in Argentina and Ireland had profound and historic wins. In both nations, long-standing bans on abortion were struck down in the last couple of years, and a right to abortion won by powerful grassroots in the streets movements. Speakers from all three countries will be on the panel. The Zoom panel will take place on Saturday, August 28th at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Mountain Time, 3 p.m. Central Time, and 4 p.m. Eastern. You can find a link to register for the panel at laborexpress.org. Of course, that's always a place to go for anything about you know, our program, anything here on the program, and those links I referred to earlier, it's laborexpress.org. That's all the time we have for tonight's program. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those by IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Access in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Worker Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah.